Traditionalists want their pitchers hitting. Fans that grew up on AL ball want the universal DH. Can't we just compromise and let Shohei Otani hit for everybody's pitcher? This is the Selbius Godcast. You are listening to the Selby is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Fly ball, deep right field. Back is Spencer at the one and two at the Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. What is up, everybody? I'm TJ Zupi. He is Zach Meisel. Thanks for finding us. It is the Selfie Godcast, where you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you happen to catch your podcasts. And you can also find us on Twitter at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel, at Selbius Godcast, as well as Instagram, Selbius Godcast on there. Happy home opener as we record this just hours before the Indians take the field of progressive field in front of fans. You have to be pretty excited about that. Well, this is just fantastic. I mean, we have games to talk about. We have tangible results to freak out over. Uh, it's the home opener. And we also get to see if you're going to be able to to keep coming up with these witty openings for every podcast episode. That's the downside, really, of doing multiple episodes per week. And we, we had such good reaction to our first Patreon episode. If you need more Godcast throughout the week, you can get an extra one, if not more than that depending on what's going on over at patreon.com slash Godcast, and we'll have more on that coming up in just a minute. But the more episodes we do, the wittier I have to be, and then I just I feel like Bilbo Baggins, like butter scraped over too much bread. Yeah, good luck with that. I mean, it's <laughs> we're three games in. That's a 162-game season, so. At least you can cross Lord of the Rings reference off the, the bingo card. I promise we're not going to do this every year. I go into the season and I say, I'm going to keep a level head. I'm not going to get too caught up in results. And yet here I am buying stock in Emmanuel Classe, freaking out about the offense, really concerned about who is going to be the leadoff hitter for this team. We're three games in. They haven't even played a game at home. The season's already over in some people's mind. I don't even know why we're here. The funny part is that spring training happens and we say, hey, don't pay attention to the statistics. Then the first series of the year happens. We say, hey. Stop paying attention to the statistics. When are people allowed to care? When are they allowed to panic? When are they allowed to get excited? Immediately. Yeah, I, I would prefer panic to people not giving a damn at all. Because if they don't give a damn at all, then they don't care about this podcast. And that's really selfishly all I care about. So please <laughs> care. Really, really care. I need you to panic click on every piece of content that we put out. <laughs> well, so then we've we've had three games to react to. So, what are your your sweeping declarations after one series? Uh, well, well, a lot of the things that we thought about this team have proven to be true. The starting pitching is solid right off the the bat. Wouldn't say they were outstanding. They all had their problems in the first inning, but all three guys equally look like the guys that you're going to be counting on all season long to be your backbone. It's against Detroit, so you don't put too much stock into that, but they at least look like a, a more formidable foe than they were at any point over the past few years. Look like a fun team, an up-and-coming team. This this division's going to be fun for quite a while, I think, between Detroit, mm-hmm. Kansas City on the way up, and Cleveland, what they have with their minor league system, and then, of course, with Chicago being on their way to potentially juggernauts and, and the Twins just continuing to do what they do. This division is going to be fun, I think, for, for many years to come. But then on the offensive side of things... Still struggling to score runs, still struggling to come up with clutch hits. But I think even the more frustrating thing, Zach, is I said on Twitter, this offense is going to be 
maddening at times this year because they're going to be they're going to go through stretches where they don't hit the ball particularly well. I thought this weekend was even more frustrating and capable of having you rip your hair out because they smoked the ball pretty much mm-hmm. all weekend. In fact, if you look at some of the expected numbers, if you go over to StatCast, you can pull up expected weighted on base, which gives you an idea of how well the quality of contact is. You, you factor in walks. You factor in strikeouts. It, it tells you below the surface how well the offense is performing, and it's a, a metric that stabilizes pretty quickly, more, more than three games, but still pretty quickly. The Indians have the third best expected weighted on base in baseball, and yet for most of the weekend, the Indians struggled to score runs, and the really frustrating thing is they were they were at their best in game two, and they just couldn't come up with that big hit, and when they did hit the ball well, it was seemingly right at somebody, or the ballpark played a, a factor in that. Yeah, so I've said that I think this offense will be better than it was last year. And look, that's like that's not some like risky proposition. Um, it sucked last year. It was so bad. And the reason, though, that I'm I don't think this is going to be a top ten offense. I think it probably could peak at middle of the pack. And the reason for that is what you laid out there. You look at, especially like the top five or six in the order, and we're going to get to lineup construction in a minute. I'm going to ignore how this lineup has been assembled so far. But if you think about Cesar Hernandez, Jose Ramirez, Eddie Rosario, Framil Reyes, and Josh Naylor. Like we know Hernandez has a good walk rate. He's got a good on-base percentage. He's been like that his whole career. Like he's a guy that I'd be comfortable with hitting leadoff. Jose Ramirez, we know, is one of the top hitters in baseball. And then you look at the next three. like. Eddie Rosario and Josh Naylor, very good contact hitters. Even though Eddie Rosario swings at pitches over his head, he doesn't strike out a ton. Josh Naylor doesn't strike out a ton. Both guys can can hit decently against lefties and righties. And then Framil Reyes, we know, in the middle of the order, has tons of power. He and Naylor, or, or, or we know over the weekend, like all these guys are making hard contact. Framil Reyes makes as hard a contact as anybody, and as frequently as anybody. So... You just lay it out there, and it's like, that fivesome, no, it's not, like, littered with top 50 prospects. And, like, I think about the White Sox lineup, it's definitely more prolific. The Twins lineup is definitely more prolific. But that five is perfectly fine and capable of being decent. It's the rest of the lineup that I have. we all have major questions about. It's the rest of the lineup that anytime I tweet out the lineup, everyone replies with the gif of, who the fuck are these guys? <laughs> it's, yeah, I get it. You know, I don't think anyone was excited to see Austin Hedges' name in the lineup on Sunday, even though he hit a home run. Um, I think everybody has questions about Ben Gamel batting leadoff against righties. It makes no sense. Um, but there is potential. And the key here, I mean, if you hit the ball hard, there are, this is people don't want to hear about exit velocity and they don't want to hear about analytics. But the more often you hit the ball hard, better the chances that's going to do some damage. And they at least have some guys at the top of the order who get on base and who hit the ball hard. That's all you can ask for. Yeah, on top of that, they also were the the third most unlucky team as far as the early season weekend results in their actual WOBA and their expected WOBA. Some of that is ballpark. Some of that is just hitting at somebody right, right where they're positioned. And... Things like that tend to get more stable as the year goes on, but you are going to have teams that just get unlucky, some that 
will always be lucky. Um, some of that is skill set. If you've got a bunch of speedy guys, maybe they play over their heads a little bit. And then Comerica Park has always had this weird history with StatCast where all of the teams there really excel when it comes to expected numbers. You don't know if it's guys just see the ball really well there. Maybe it's just the lighting. Maybe it's the backdrop. But there has always there have been studies extensively about how the Tigers find themselves in the, the tops of some expected numbers and hard hit rates and expected Woba and all that kind of sort of thing. Coming in a ballpark where you wouldn't expect guys to really crush the ball. But all that aside, I think we're seeing a lot of the things that we just knew about this team already, that there were going to be parts of it that just didn't make sense, at least initially, that you were going to be curious to see how some guys found a role. And, you know, we, we didn't talk about Jordan Luplo starting in center field a lot this spring, and there he was. We didn't talk really at all until the very end about Yu Chang finding a spot at first base against left-handed pitching. There he is. We haven't talked about really him at all playing that position, and he looked all right there defensively for the little bit mm-hmm. of time that, that he got to play there. Um, you know, made some, some nice plays going up the line, flipping to the pitcher, things that you wouldn't think about a first baseman doing, but when there's somebody new playing the position, you're paying attention to this sort of thing. Um, and you you mentioned something yesterday that I think makes a lot of sense. Against left-handed pitching, this lineup can look competent, especially if you're getting something out of Yu Chang, uh, because Jordan Luplo is supposed to hit lefties, and that lengthens the lineup. It gives you an, another formidable bat that's now playing a position that has been a problem for you. But against right-handed pitching, oh. It's. I think it's going to be a challenge for a while until you at least find out more about Jake Bowers and ah, they figure out center field because, as I said at the outset, the goal can't be to get Ben Gamble 140 games in the outfield this year. And on top of that, you know, I, I, I like him as a player. I think he's a nice little piece part to have on a, a, a contending team even. Good fourth outfielder that can step in and play when necessary. But he can't be leading off. <laughs> he can't be. I don't care if he walks a lot. I just don't see how that makes sense for this offense. I, I know they don't have a, a great leadoff option against right-handed pitching, especially if Cesar Hernandez is saying that he prefers to hit the two-hole. But, my goodness, it can't uh, that, be Ben Gamble. Yeah. I, the Cesar Hernandez thing is odd. He has not said that to us. Um, and Terry Francona has not relayed that to us. I know I had seen some people saying that Tom Hamilton may have said it on a broadcast. I, I wrote a story today, Monday, all about this lineup construction. And look, there are a few things we need to to kind of put out there. Number one, Jordan Luplo hitting leadoff against lefties, it's actually totally justified, is it not? I mean, if if you look at the highest OPS against left-handed pitching the last two years, 2019 and 2020, here's who Luplo ranks behind. Nelson Cruz, J.D. Martinez, Alex Bregman. That's it. He's fourth in the majors. D.J. LeMayhew's right behind him. That's some really elite company. So if you want to get, I mean, you have to think about lineup construction as you want your best hitters to get the most plate appearances. It's pretty simple. Um, And I would think you would want Luplo batting against lefties as much as anybody. Right, that's what I pointed out on Twitter. I had seen some people complain about it. Against left-handed pitching, I want Jordan Luplo to the plate as much as possible, provided 
he is doing what you just laid out. If he's taking a step back from that at all, if he's not as lethal against left-handed pitching, doesn't make as much sense. But if you're thinking about how do I get him to the plate as much as possible against a left-handed pitcher, put him in the leadoff spot because then you don't have to mess with the rest of the lineup. And if he were hitting a little bit further down, let's say fifth or sixth in this lineup, well, that's another potential inning where the manager could say, I'm going to the righty now. But if he's hitting at the top of the lineup, the odds are, are I would say, better that that lefty starter is going to stay on the mound and Jordan Luplo is going to get that third plate appearance against that left-handed pitcher. But I can't guarantee that's going to happen if he's hitting a little bit further down in the lineup. I don't think you have to overthink mm-hmm. it too much and think about, oh, well, this isn't a typical leadoff hitter or there, there aren't going to be guys on base. As we saw over the weekend, there are times where eight and nine guys get on. And it, you can try to think about who's going to create RBI chances and how you're going to do that. But I think that's overthinking things. Just get him to the plate as much yeah. as possible against lefties and then be okay with that. And then he's going to come up and hit a few home runs in, in some key spots. You're only hitting leadoff in the first inning. That's the only time it's guaranteed. Which is also why, like, if Cesar Hernandez truly doesn't want to hit leadoff, sorry. <laughs> like, a player's personal preferences shouldn't matter because truly the lineup construction... The only part of it that matters is just getting your best hitters up near the top. So the the reason why this stuff doesn't quite work, though, is because just because one half of the platoon leads off doesn't mean the other half of the platoon needs to. And Ben Gamble, not only does he have no business leading off against righties, he's been better against lefties in his career anyway. He's actually a pretty competent hitter against lefties. 354 on base percentage. 282 batting average, 408 slugging percentage. Like, that's a guy who actually, you know, like, I don't know if I'd want him leading off in this lineup, but, like, you could you could justify that. That's against lefties, though. Yeah. Against righties, the slash line is 255, 326, 382. That's a bench player. So it, it's not even just the lineup. It's that Gamel and Luplov don't even make sense as a pairing. And then you're going to throw Ahmed Rosario into the mix, who is much better against lefties in his career than righties. And you've got three guys who all do the same thing. So, and none of them are natural center fielders. So this, this trio or duo or whatever it is, it doesn't make sense. And until they figure that out, until they give them a Daniel Johnson to be a platoon partner, a Bradley Zimmer, um, it's just, none of this is going to make a ton of sense. No. I mean, I do like that over the weekend you are getting a look at some of the the players we need to see. Yu Chang is on that list. Again, we didn't talk a lot about him. It's because it's been difficult to find exactly where he fits, especially when Ahmed Rosario was on this team. As I I said, our our first podcast to, to begin the season, those two together aren't a great pairing on the bench unless you're finding somewhere other than shortstop or middle infield for either one of those guys to play. Now, Ahmed Rosario hasn't gotten a chance to really grab hold of center field. I don't think Tito wanted to throw him out in Comerica Park right there on the, the opening weekend to, hey, go chase things up triple triples alley. And again, I can say, well, what's the, what's the difference between that and Jordan Luplo? But there's more, uh, at least, um, of a track record just in the outfield and catching fly balls for Luplo. So if you want to make that case, fine. If you want to get the bat in the lineup, I get it. Uh, but if Yu Chang is playing first base and, and he's actually serving a role here, then I can get behind that. Yeah, the one thing I didn't want to see happen is him to get up here 
make the team as he should have because he played his ass off all spring training and this this is someone that you know he has raw power you have yet to see it translate all the way into games but on occasion you see him flash that pop um you know, he's at times has been viewed as a, a very intriguing player with capability of playing middle infield now if he's adding to that that's a guy that can absolutely play some sort of role on this team but I didn't want him to get buried on the bench and only play once a week when somebody needs a day off it didn't make sense for him and if if that's not his spot where he's gonna play against lefties at first base I like it because it's giving him something to seize, something to to take ownership of and I think that's important for a young player then I, you can kind of it's not an everyday role, but you can almost view it as that. You know, you, you know that you're going to mm-hmm. be playing against left-handed pitching. There's no question. That's your job. And so you can focus on that. And then from there, you can build on maybe trying to find him other spots, maybe other pinch-hitting opportunities late in games against the lefty when the right-hander is starting. Um, you know, I like that, and I like what we've seen so far from him. And I'm, I'm very pleased with how he's picked up that position and, and sort of run with it. You're pleased. The guy can't stop smiling whenever I know. he's on, at the plate. That's great. That's I, I love that. I don't know if it's just, if he's actually happy or if that's just he's looking at the pitcher and that's just what his face does when he's up there. But he said it kind of settles him down. But <laughs> whatever, whatever works. More power to you. And also, if you're an opposing pitcher, you know, remember was it Mike Fetters who used to like just like turn his head really quick and just stare at the batter with like a scowl. Yeah, there was you know a couple. Yeah, there was a couple of relievers that did that. Right, and so if you're trying to like Rod give this Beck, menacing maybe? glare, okay, if you're trying to give this menacing glare toward the hitter, and they just have this huge wide <laughs> smile and they're showing their teeth, I would be so thrown off. It's a good strategy. What are you so pleased about? What are you so happy about? Well, you when you're coming, smiling when I throw this 96 mile an hour fastball past you. Oh well, it, it still is. It didn't work. He's coming up with two run singles. In some some key spots, so I you know we've we talked so much about this this being a case where we need to learn about some of the young players. I I, w- I would like to see more of that, but if nothing else, I can come out of opening weekend feeling like hey we're starting to learn something about Yu Chang and his ability to play some sort of role on this team. It, it wasn't who I anticipated really centering in on in the first weekend, but there he is, and if he keeps playing well. You know, they the old saying is you hit they're gonna find a spot for you. I think that's true of him. If he hits, and he hits enough against left-handed pitching, and that starts to bleed over into some right-handed pitching, then maybe he finds a a, a role on this team. And then they got to deal with yet another middle infielder that they're trying to move to a different spot. But it's a good problem to have. Yeah, um, I wanted to mention one other thing though, as I'm I, I can't stop thinking about the lineup construction. We're going to be doing that all season long. You realize that. That's going to be a constant theme on this this show. Well, I found something interesting. Cesar Hernandez in his career has spent the most time in the leadoff spot, second most time in the number two spot. His OPS as a leadoff hitter, 749. Can you guess his OPS as a number two hitter? Uh, 742. No, 749. It's identical. (laughs) So, again, like if a player has a... preference i think as a manager you got to just be like hey sorry <laughs> like it, yeah. it really doesn't matter um you're, you're leading off the game once there's no difference you gotta, and it would help you gotta the team. remember you gotta get front mill out of the cleanup spot yeah <laughs> which I, I said it was a couple of weeks ago it seemed like that was a theme for this team find ways to not put front mill cleanup 
And by putting somebody else in the leadoff spot, it lengthens the lineup and keeps Fran Bell out of the cleanup spot. And so it wouldn't be an episode of the Selvius Godcast without me posing a trivia question to you. Uh, the horse's name is Friday. Yeah, I don't get that. In 2017, the Indians used six different leadoff hitters. 2017, the year they won 102 games. Okay. Can you? How many of the six can you name? 2017. Jason Kipnis? Correct. 42 games. Austin Jackson? Nope. No, never in the leadoff spot? He batted second quite a bit, but never leadoff. Hmm. I would have figured it was one of those things where, oh, we don't want to mess with the rest of the lineup, so he's going to lead off on a day. (laughs) Um, Frankie? Oh, wait, excuse me, Francisco? Yes, 63 games. He was um, there more than anybody else. Carlos Santana? Yep, 37 games. Who else would have been in the leadoff spot? Bradley Zimmer? Yep, 17 games. So you're missing the other two players combined for three games in the leadoff spot. Oh, God. Are they? Both outfielders. Uh, Greg Allen? No. When when did he come up? 2018? Uh, No, he was was tail end of 2017. That's right. Uh, Oh, gosh. Are they actual legitimate parts of the team, or am I completely... Um, I mean, I can give you one. One was Luplo before Luplo, and after Rayburn. Luplo? Who was it? I don't even know. I'm blanking. He eats crickets. Oh, Brandon Geyer. Okay, yeah. So he spent two games there, and then you'll never get this last one. This can be today's random Indian. Well, if I'll never get it, I don't know. Let's not waste people's time. Daniel Robertson batted leadoff for the juggernaut Cleveland Indians in 2017. (laughs) That's amazing. So they used six different leadoff hitters. Ten players shuffled in and out of the number two spot. So, and like, I think we can even point to it. Like, 2019 is the perfect example. Because Leonis Martin started the season as the leadoff hitter, spent three weeks there. Then he spent two weeks hitting second. I think they moved Frankie to or Lindor to the leadoff spot. Then they dropped Martin to the bottom of the order because he wasn't hitting at all. And then by June, he was not even a member of the organization. And like we we all know, Carlos Gonzalez batted cleanup one day and was designated for assignment the next. So we we do overreact. First of all, we over scrutinize lineup construction. Period. But we also overreact to early season lineups, I think. Um, and I think it does prove that if this Gamble-Luplo tandem at the top of the order doesn't work, they will make changes. It's just how long do you let it go? And will Francona keep Luplo against lefties in the leadoff spot and move Gamble down? Like, the whole, oh, you don't want to move around the whole lineup. Who cares? Again, it's only set for one person in that first inning, the leadoff hitter. Everyone else, you're just batting when you bat, and like, you could have runners on base, and you might not. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense to me. But there's something psychological. I'm telling you, for these players, there's something about it. And no matter how many times you tell them, it's just a spot. It doesn't matter. For some reason, it does. I have no. Do you think there's ever? Is has there ever been a hitter who's like, man, I really can't bat seventh you got to put me eighth skip like i just you got to do it it shouldn't matter and i think if you looked at the numbers it probably wouldn't for pretty much everybody i can't see somebody just 
being that so afraid of the number four spot or 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 impacting their performance because they're thinking I gotta hit a home run. Yeah, they spend enough time there. I think you just you're just you. I don't think it impacts you that much. I mean, if you're the number four hitter, like first of all, if if you come up in the first inning, that means there's runners on base, and like who's even thinking like what's the difference at that point if you're fourth or fifth or third? <laughs> and if you're the number four hitter, probably with with some regularity, you're leading off the second inning. Then it's like you're a leadoff hitter. Yeah. I mean, I, I this no, stuff annoys you, me because it if feels you read like the book, it's the number three hitter that comes up the most with two outs and nobody on base. So right. what well, that's that, why you're not a run producer. You you shouldn't be viewed as the heart of the order. Nobody's on base. There's two outs. You just throw your at bat away. Who cares? So in the book, <laughs> which was written in 20, 2006, Tom Tango and a couple other statisticians, they said your three best hitters should hit first, second, and fourth in some order. Correct. And then your fourth and fifth best hitters should hit third and fifth. Right. Ben Gamble's not in the top five hitters. Now, I've, so I, you know, I've, I've theorized about this, but that research comes from looking at all of these hitters, what they have done in all of these past years, looking at lineups and then seeing which hitters do what. But wasn't that put together under the umbrella of what lineups used to be? So in other words... That yeah. that data was coming in when you used to just have Slappy Magoo hitting second, laying down bunts. And so you would, you, the third hitter would come to the plate with two outs and nobody on because you had some terrible guy that's slapping singles all over the yard hitting second where he shouldn't have been. In today's age where the number two hitter is much more potent, has that changed? Well, it's like the chicken and the egg. The number two hitter is more potent because they've studied this research. Correct. So, <laughs> is yeah. the number three hitter still coming to the plate with nobody on base? Or is, since the number two That's hitter is point. better, are we now seeing cases where the third hitter, it makes more sense to get, uh, you know what? Oh, don't overthink it. Just make sure your best hitters get the most plate appearances. Exactly. And you don't have to worry about it. No one will get pissed off. Really. I mean, the, the perfect thing to point to here, and we've talked about it, and you've ranted about it, um, and I think Mike Hargrove still isn't taking your calls because of it, but in the 95 World Series, the Indians lost games 1, 2, and 6, three road games in Atlanta, all by one run. And you know who was standing on deck in all three of those games when the game ended? I do, because I've written it. Albert Bell. And you know who was hitting second in all of those games? Who got pinch hit for late in games? Omar Vizquel, who had a 684 OPS. So, yes, lineup construction can matter, but it's more just... It's it's so simple. You want your best hitters to get the most plate appearances. It can matter. Yes, it can. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't matter at all. Sometimes you score 15 runs, and the lineup can be just juggled in weird ways. Sometimes the number eight hitter goes off and has a, a tremendous day. Uh, it can mean everything. It can mean nothing. Sort of like looking at a person's velocity in the first game of the season when it's 30 <laughs> degrees and a blizzard. I have to go off. And partially at you, but it's not really because of you. But wow. I, it gets under my skin a bit. The velocity alarmists, it drives me crazy. It's not because velocity doesn't matter. It clearly does. Even for a guy like Shane Bieber that has lethal stuff, you know, he's, he's as good as he is because he found a way to throw 95 and touch that on the radar gun. So when he's down around 91, 92, of course, you're like, huh, what's going on? But at the same time, you always need to provide proper context. That weather sucked. How bad did that weather suck on opening day? 
Um, I was in a toasty press box, so it was fine. Well, they don't open the windows in Detroit ever. <laughs> it could be 95. Um, the windows are staying shut, and we're going to – everyone's going to be real toasty. No, it was it was not only cold, but it was windy, as you probably saw with the snow blowing in every which direction. Um, yeah, I, I, you're mad at me, but I did reference when I wrote that Bieber's velocity was down that – you know, it's probably because he couldn't feel his fingers. Yeah, uh, yeah. You threw a sentence in there. Uh, whoa, velocity's down. Everybody hit the panic button. It, it, now, if somebody's velocity is up, yeah, of course, I want to know about that. But if somebody's velocity's down, the problem is, and you can't do this last year because there was no April, but you really need to take into account what a guy's velocity was at this time last year, especially if guys are playing on the East Coast and the Midwest, and the weather sucks. And... and we we see this all the time with pitchers as they get into the season, the velocity, they get their bodies a little bit more uh, fluid, a little bit more capable of just unloading. And the velocity ticks up a little bit in May and June and July when the body's feeling really good. So it's it's not to say that velocity doesn't matter or you shouldn't keep an eye on it, but it's almost like adding velocity to broadcasts while it makes Emmanuel Classe's every outing spectacular. It also, like it used to, to kill me to watch a Corey Kluber start because you'd just be scrutinizing over every pitch because at all times you always felt like this guy was going to get hurt. And it's like, well, that that cutter was only 90 as opposed to 91. This is something to keep an eye on. It, it, and it, it was not – it wasn't that it wasn't important. It just made it less enjoyable. Like if you looked at the end line for Bieber, he's striking out everybody. Mm-hmm. And outside of giving – okay, gives up a two-run home run. To Miggy in the first inning. Which, by the way, I mean, it's not like Miggy just launched one over the batter's eye in center. I mean, that thing yeah. snuck over the opposite I mean, field. If it's fence. not if it's not snowing, Naylor might have a shot at jumping up and catching mm-hmm. it. If he could actually see where the play, like, he he didn't even know where he was on the field at that point. And I can't blame him because you couldn't see where he was on the broadcast. And Miguel Cabrera is sliding into second base because he doesn't even know if the ball's over the freaking fence. <sighs> the point is, I, I get a little... Uh, disturbed by all the velocity alarmists because I think proper context is always important. Let's look at what he did last April. Let's look at the weather conditions. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody. You say the you go to the old tried and true. Well, everybody's playing in that weather. That's absolutely true. And if you have a bad day in the weather, it's not to say that that loss doesn't count or you know it was some sort of cheap. No, I mean everybody does have to take into account the conditions. But when you're evaluating a certain player in their performance, I don't even think it's fair to say the weather impacts everybody the same because it doesn't. What if he just his body was just not letting him get fully loose? And if you watch the game, you can see he was constantly just kind of stretching the shoulder a little bit. And as the game went on, what what happened? He started to throw a little bit harder, a little bit more consistently. Consistently. Now, wasn't his typical 94 to 95 when he needs it, but he was still comfortably getting up into 93. And the most important thing, outside of the Mickey home run, the batter still looked befuddled by all of his off-speed stuff. And once he started to, to really settle into the game and, and his body probably unloosened for him a bit, he looked like the same Shane Bieber. So let's let's give it a couple of starts. If you're four starts into the year and his velocity is down two and a half miles per hour, then yeah, that's something to get really concerned about. But the alarmism after one game and 30-degree temperatures, I'm going to hold off on that a little bit. Okay. I think... I don't... Were people alarmed? Well, the problem is you get, like, spreadsheets on opening day yeah. of everybody. Here's all the velocity up. Here's all the velocity down. And you see Shane Bieber's name on there, and there's no follow-up tweet to say, here are the guys that had to battle 
like they were pitching in Antarctica. It's just here's 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 the information. And yeah. with all with all things information, you always need the context. You always need additional information to fully make a judgment. So I don't think that's worthy of panic. He's also going from Arizona, where he was gradually building his workload, to his first start of the year, where he's going to throw more than he did in any of those outings in Arizona. And it's start one of 30-some. Yeah, he. I don't think he's going to just totally empty the tank there either. Uh, especially in the early innings. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Can we focus on Emmanuel Classe then, <laughs> since he's the fun side of this equation? Yeah, but he's the part of the broadcast where you just give me all the velocity. Give me all also, the cast data. Remember when Danny Salazar made that one random start in 2019? Yes, when he when the and first he was pitch was like a, 82. When they said, and here's the wide up, and the first pitch is in there. It's a changeup uh, from Salazar. Nope. That's just the fastball now. And you're telling me you, you wouldn't have wanted radar guns on that I night? didn't need a radar gun. It took three seconds for the ball <laughs> to get to the plate. Like, you could count. One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three. What the hell is this? And when every pitch is an EFIS pitch, <laughs> um, you're in trouble. When the first pitch is a changeup, what do you change it up from? Hey! <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, class A is fun. And it's not just the velocity, because I'll tell you, it feels like every pitcher <laughs> over the weekend was throwing, across the league, was throwing 101. Um, it just seemed like everywhere I looked, someone was tweeting, oh man, this reliever you've never heard of is just went 101, 101 with a 94 mile an hour slider. <laughs> Julian uh, Merriweather was doing yeah. that for Toronto. You know, about that really quick. After the Donaldson trade, you know, the Indians traded Julian Merriweather, who had Tommy John surgery and just couldn't stay healthy and was inconsistent. What and is, he? is he 28 now? How he's old is 29 he? or 30, I think. Um, and I, Toronto Radio had me on, and Toronto Radio, I mean, those those guys can be, they, they are so critical of their teams. And they were so pissed, and I tried to tell them, look, like, I don't know why you expect to get a, to get a ton for one month of a not healthy Josh Donaldson. <laughs> he, he couldn't even play when they acquired him. He was still rehabbing. Uh, but at least you get this kid in Merriweather who I had, like I had heard that he had, like maybe if he had recovered really well from Tommy John, could throw hard and was like, I mean, it was, it was a lottery ticket. And when I tried to tell them that, they just like dunked on me and they were like, they were like, stop trying to justify this. And like, this is a terrible trade and you know it. And I'm like, I'm like, all right, I, <laughs> I have nothing to add because you asked for my, my take on this and you seem to be the expert on some kid you've never even heard of. And again, like, like how do you expect to get anything for one month of a player who hasn't been healthy? Anyway, Julian Merriweather is now like, <laughs> has a potential to be an elite reliever for them. Um, and so it's just funny, and I'm sure now they're like, oh, this was such a great trade. And, yeah. Yeah. And so, I, I don't want to hear, well, do whatever you want, but anybody bitching about, oh, well, the Indians gave him up for a month of Josh Donaldson. Can't play this game on both sides. <laughs> Either mm -hmm. you want them to surround the star players with more star players and make a run at it, or you don't. And that means you got to give up some players sometimes. You take a shot. You bring in Donaldson. Yeah, and Merriweather wasn't. He, he wouldn't have contributed until this point anyhow. So, uh, not that I've seen anybody complain, but just preparing for that. 
Yeah, so the Indians' bullpen has been really successful for a long time. There was the one year in 2018, where, get your buzzer ready because I'm about to reference Alexi Ogando, um, where they just couldn't find anybody, and it was a disaster. Um, and, and guys were hurt that year, too. That's That played a big role. But for the by and large, whether you're talking about the arrow with Cody Allen and Brian Shaw and Andrew Miller, or even more recently with the Nick Wittgren, Ali Perez, Brad Hand group. Like, they've been really successful. But the one thing they've never had is just a group of those guys who just throw gas, right? I mean, they had the lowest fastball velocity and the lowest ERA of any bullpen in baseball a couple years ago. And And some of that is because you just want to stay away from the middle. Either Mm -hmm. be really rock solid with with the velocity or be different than everybody else. And that's worked to their advantage at times. But it also, I think, left all of us feeling like, eh, do you really trust these guys in the late innings? And there's the psychology behind it is if you can throw the way Class A throws, the way Karinchek throws, the way Anthony Ghost throws, Sam Hentges throws, if you get in trouble, you always have a way out. And if you're throwing 91 and relying on command and deception, yeah, you might be able to get that strikeout you need. Maybe you can even get a double play. But at least from a an observer's point of view, it leaves you a little bit uneasy, right? Like you're just not quite sure. You feel more comfortable if you know that the pitcher can just blow it by the hitter. And so it just it makes you think that this bullpen has a ton of potential. You come out look first of all, this team had no idea what to expect from Class A when he got to spring training because he was pitching by himself on a deserted field in the Dominican Republic last year. And they didn't, I mean, they had barely seen him in spring training 2020 because he threw like one or two bullpens and then got hurt. So he comes to Arizona, um, I think in the fall. And uh, now, I mean, it says a lot when he's not the closer, right? But he is, in the conversation and this team is kind of just going with allowing the situation to dictate what reliever gets used, which we've said, like you, you know, you want some sort of roles established because you want guys to have an idea of when they might be called upon, but you don't want to pigeonhole your best reliever into an inning where you might not need them or it might not be a high leverage situation. So but to have Class A already in that mix, where Francona said Class A, Karinchek, and Nick Wickren are going to be the three guys considered for those late-inning spots, that's impressive in itself. Because we've seen it takes Francona time to warm up and to trust players. And so for Class A, and obviously a 101-mile-an-hour cutter will do that, but for Class A to have already convinced Francona that he's worthy of high-leverage situations is impressive. And that's why, I mean, we've said it on this podcast, wouldn't shock me at all if he was just the team's closer by like mid-May. Not not only to trust him, but to trust him coming off of last year where he was suspended. And in some ways the team couldn't trust him, right? So to win mm-hmm. back the trust that quickly um, and just, just see how special he can be, um, I think it speaks to, you're right, his ability as a pitcher. And because you do have... You have Karinchek. You you trust Whitgren on most days. Um, you know I think they've got enough looks in their bullpen. Brian Shaw <laughs> apparently is 
revitalize his career. Um, and all you need to see is a couple of outings to, you know, know that. Being a bit facetious here, but as much as I wanted to hold off on naming the the, the air quote closer, I don't think there's anybody that makes more sense for that role if you're going to use it throughout the season. And I think 75 to 80% of the time you do just need somebody that you know when they're going to pitch. You get to the postseason, you can be a little bit more lenient with that, but 162 games, guys got to know where they're slotting in, sort of. I don't think it would make any any sense to go to anybody else other than him in that ninth inning. Now, if you need a couple of extra outs in the eighth inning because things are melting down, I get it. But I think if things are just kind of typically going as they, they would in a normal close ball game, you've got Karen Check, you've got Whitgren, you've got mm-hmm. Maton, you, you, Trevor Steffen looked all right. Um, you've got Oliver. I mean, you've, you've got enough looks in your bullpen that I think you can just put this guy in the ninth inning and feel good about that. You know, Tito always talked about when he had Andrew Miller that he felt comfortable utilizing him in all these different spots because he had that other stabilizing force yep. in the ninth inning in Cody Allen. I think Emmanuel Classe can just be that. You can have all these other guys that you can mix and match where you need to, and he's just the steadying force that he might not get all the strikeouts you think a guy with 101 stuff, 101 mile per hour stuff would get. And maybe some of that is, is speaking to what Tito talked about, just having a guy that's around the plate a lot. Um, and, and you need to throw the ball a little bit off the plate if you're going to get some strikeouts. His command is too good. <laughs> Doctor said too I'm healthy. too healthy. <laughs> but but because his the he 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 throws such heavy balls uh, with that cutter, he keeps the ball on the ground. So you get some strikeouts, and the other balls are balls on the ground where you can just in the ninth inning have your best infield defense out there, and just take advantage of that. He's probably not going to give up a ton of home runs unless he makes huge critical mistakes in the middle of the zone. For as much as someone that doesn't... I'm not married to roles, and I don't think that's always so important, but I think you just keep him in that ninth inning role. And and for the the 162 games it takes to get you wherever you're going to get, I feel really comfortable with that. And it doesn't take much to see that I think think that job is made for him. Yeah, it's cool watching... I mean, watching that velocity just because we haven't really seen it in Cleveland, but also it's the movement on that cutter. I mean, if you're a left-handed hitter and it's coming at you 101 miles an hour and then just like bearing in on your hands, that has got to be such an uncomfortable at bat. And then his slider is faster than Aaron Savali's fastball. (laughs) That's that's the other thing. You see 93. Like, oh shit, that's the breaky ball. Got it. Yeah. So it's, you're right. I mean, wait till... The summer when you've got Kyle Nelson, who's kind of like that funky lefty with sweeping slider. You've got Nick Sandlin, who throws sidearm from the right side. Wait for it. And? (laughs) You want me to say Anthony Ghost? Ah! There it is. (laughs) But you're right. It's just this bullpen can give you so many looks. And it's not just... I mean, it used to be just all guys who threw... like It was like Tyler Clippard. And Wickren and Ali <laughs> Perez and Nick Goody, guys who didn't. I mean, Goody like threw as hard as any of those guys at like ninety two, ninety three. Um, but this is you've got those guys plus you've got guys who throw really hard, lefties and right. I mean, it's I've said it. I think the bullpen can be the strength of the team this year. Those are famous last words. Uh, I'll I'll never forget it. one of my first conversations with Nick Goody. I was talking about 
guys that throw hard, and I say, well, you don't throw 100. And he looked at me, and for a second I thought maybe I offended him, and he said, yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, still waiting on that, Nick. He's a good dude. He's yeah, he's a great a dude. Really yeah. tough injury look. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to what we got coming up later this week. Uh, I don't want to reveal it yet because it hasn't happened, and I just you know I've I've learned to never promise too much and then not have it occur. But we're really excited about what's coming up later this week with our Patreon episode. So if you're not a supporter over at Patreon and you want more Selby as Godcast throughout the week, how do you find it, Zach? Go to patreon.com slash Godcast, and you can choose how much content you want. <laughs> so whatever you're comfortable with. Yes. And you can just give us more money if you want. I mean, it's a dollar per episode, which in the grand scheme of things, I think it made sense. But you could also be like my mother and pledge $10 <laughs> per episode. Like, Mom, what are you doing? I appreciate the support, but you do know what you're signing up for, right? Like, what if we just go wild in a month and do 10 extra episodes? Well, and it's not just the episodes. It's it's the extra stuff. Yeah. You know, we'll do some uh, Patreon-exclusive, I don't know, discussion forums or Zooms or stuff like that. And as we go along here, we already had a fantasy baseball league set up by some of our listeners. And it looks like I'm kicking your ass so far in week one, which is not surprising. Um, Dude, it's Monday. We got a whole other week to go. <laughs> But and no, then just also, keep celebrating before you reach the end zone, man. Just keep doing that. <laughs> I have to now because I feel like you drafted every player I wanted to <laughs> draft right before I had the chance. But also, we don't want to forget about – I mean, we love our – even if you don't support our, our Patreon, we just love anyone who, who listens. We greatly appreciate – and also the five-star reviews, of course – Keep in mind, because I've already had a couple people reach out saying they're going to be at games coming up. I, we owe you a beer, or I owe you a beer, because I, I guess you didn't make the promise. Uh, if you leave us a five-star review. And that leads me to an apology to a loyal listener, Andrew Nemec, who was encouraging people to leave a five-star review, and then once they get the beer, deleting the review or changing it. Um, I think I may have called him a name last podcast. And he wanted to get across that he was just joking. And he also thanked us for the shout out. So, Andrew, <laughs> it's all good. Water under the bridge. Just don't do that. Don't <laughs> leave a five-star yeah. review and then change it later on. What is that? Be like Sloopy Steve or Joe in Lakewood or BSCHNYD. Yeah. Uh, all of have uh, left a recent five-star review. So we thank all of you for doing that. We'll catch you guys later this week over at the Patreon, patreon.com slash Godcast, where, again, we hopefully have a little special surprise coming. And until then, have a good week, everybody. We'll see you. Out of here.